Hello, welcome to Texas True Crime. I'm your host, Jessica. Before we get started with today's episode, I was going to see if any of you guys out there had been following the reports from Austin about the men being found in Lady Bird Lake. Um, some of you guys that aren't from Texas may not have heard these reports. And even some of you guys in Texas, if you're not in the Austin area, may not have heard about it. But for the past several years, and especially in the past three months, young men in their 20s and 30s have been found dead in Ladybird Lake. And there's a big coincidence, at least to me, that all these young men, like I said, are in their 20s and 30s. They're dark-haired. They've been on Rainy Street, which is a popular entertainment destination in Austin. They're with their friends. They get separated from their group. And then they go missing for several days. And then they wind up in the lake dead. Every time they're pulled out of the lake, the police say, oh, it was an accidental drowning. They must have had too much to drink and wandered into the lake and drowned. Now, you can't tell me that women don't get drunk too, because they do. So why aren't any women wandering off into the lake? And why aren't there any blonde men drowning in the lake? It seems like a big coincidence to me, but police are denying any possibility of this. But the theories are really starting to gain some steam in the area. There is a Facebook page devoted to this, and there's lots of speculation floating around within the community. So if you've been following this, I'd love to hear your thoughts about it. And uh, when we have our next episode, I'll put some more facts together to give you an even better timeline. But I just wanted to bring it up because I've been following it and it feels like maybe police know more than they want to say and don't want to put the information out there yet or they're just in denial and don't see the coincidence, but surely not. Anyway, this week's episode was suggested to me by a friend, and it's particularly creepy. It is going to make you ask yourself, how well do you really know someone, even if you think you're really close to them? How does a polite, well-educated, nice guy turn into a brutal murderer? As you listen to the details of his childhood, though, I think you'll agree that he had no choice but to end up being warped by his mother even though she had the best of intentions. We are talking about Charles Albright, the eyeball killer. Charles Albright was born in Amarillo, Texas in 1933, and he was adopted by Fred and Del Albright from a children's home when he was only three weeks old. Fred owned a grocery store, and Del, his mother, was an elementary school teacher. They lived in the neighborhood of Oak Cliff in Dallas. And at that time, Oak Cliff was a very nice middle-class neighborhood, and the Albrights lived a very comfortable life. But Dell was odd, and many friends, neighbors, family members would say this. She was kind of an odd duck, and she was frugal in the extreme. 
She never bought herself anything new. She only wore secondhand clothes from Goodwill. She kept her head covered with a kerchief. And everyone said they never saw her smile. She had kind of a grim personality. Both of Charles' parents doted on him, but Dell was extreme in her parenting. Now, she wasn't particularly affectionate, but she made sure that her son had everything that he possibly needed. She pampered him. When Charles was old enough to understand that he was adopted, she told him that his birth mother was a brilliant young law student and that she secretly fell in love and married her boyfriend and became pregnant. But when her father found out, he made her annul her marriage and give her baby up for adoption. But she, Dell herself, made Charles understand that she would never abandon him, that she would always be there for him. Now, Dell, in her pampering, in her extreme parenting, went out of her way to do things that she thought were best for Charles. She decided that cow's milk was not good enough for Charles and not nutritious enough. So in the middle of the city, in their Oak Cliff neighborhood in Dallas, she raised goats in the backyard so that she could milk them daily and feed him goat's milk because she thought it was more nutritious. Dell hated for Charles to be dirty, so she would change his clothes multiple times a day to make sure that he stayed clean. But sometimes she would dress him as a girl in dresses and allow him only to play with dolls for the day. And she did this especially when her sister came to visit. She also was terrified that Charles would play with dog feces. And so she took him to Parkland Hospital and made him look at the polio patients in the great big giant iron lungs and told him that if he touched the dog feces, that he could end up spending the rest of his life in an iron lung like those patients. Dell was very strict. And when Charles was a young child, if he misbehaved, she would lock him in a dark room by himself for punishment. If he didn't drink his milk like she thought he should, she would spank him. And if he wouldn't take a nap when she wanted him to, she would tie him to his bed. So Charles quickly became a people pleaser. And in fact, he became very well liked in their neighborhood. He's not, he doesn't follow that typical profile of a serial killer like you usually hear about, that they were very unsocial and they were loners and that people didn't know much about them or they were odd. Charles was not like that at all. He was very social. He liked to be around people. People liked him a lot and he was very popular. When Charles got a little older, his parents bought him his first gun and he enjoyed hunting squirrels and birds. So to help him preserve his kills, his mother Dell enrolled him in a mail order taxidermy class when he was 11. And Charles actually became quite an accomplished taxidermist. Now Dell worked with him closely as she always did. And she showed him how to use all the tools. She showed him how to perfectly skin the animals and how to make neat, precise cuts, how to scoop the brains out and how to remove the eyes without causing any damage to the skin. Charles especially liked to work with the birds that he killed. And those became what he really focused on. In fact, 
his uh, specimens were very lifelike. But when it came time for that finishing touch, the eyes, Dell wouldn't let Charles buy the glass eyes that they sold at the taxidermy shop. Charles would go into the store and stare at all the different eyes, all the different sizes and all the different colors, eagle eyes, owl eyes, deer eyes. He loved to look at them. He was fascinated by them. And he really wanted to collect them. Like other kids in that time frame collected marbles, he wanted to collect the glass eyes. But Dell, being very frugal that she was, told him that they were much too expensive to buy. And so they would go home and get out her sewing kit and she would pick out buttons and they would sew them flat to the heads of the birds and those would be their eyes. And then they would put the birds on display in the china cabinet and friends and family would come over and remark how eerie the birds were because they were so very lifelike, but then blind at the same time because there were no eyes. As Charles got older, she began to lecture him about his manners with girls. She told Charles that he was, his father was greedy about sex and that every time his father saw her in her bra and underwear, he would try to grab her and that that was very inappropriate and that he should never act that way with girls. Now, I don't know about you, but the last thing I want to hear about is my parents' sex life. So here's poor Charles, probably around 12. And his mom is telling him about his father's behavior in the bedroom. No one wants to hear that. So you have to feel, you have to feel sorry for him as a kid. You know, no wonder he ended up how he was. She um, also never, as he got old enough to date, allowed him to go on dates unless she was their chaperone. Charles was never allowed to go on a date with a girl alone. In fact, she was the only one that was allowed to chaperone his dates. Even if the girl's parents offered to chaperone, she would say no, that she wanted to go because she wanted to make sure that there would be nothing questionable happening on that date. Her son, Charles, was a good, respectable boy, and she would be the one to make sure that he stayed like that. And Even in his teens, she made him go to bed at 8 o'clock. She wanted to make sure he was getting his proper rest. Now, as you can tell, Del was a control freak, and she tried to control every aspect of Charles's life. She, being an elementary school teacher, was very involved in his education, and it was very important to her that he exceeded. So she taught him three languages, and he became fluent in three languages. Now, Charles was a gifted student. He was highly intelligent and very smart. And because he was very smart, and Dale went to extremes to work with him outside of school also, he ended up skipping two grade levels in elementary school. Now, I haven't shared this with you guys before, but I am a teacher myself, and I have been around students who are very intelligent, and their parents have requested that they skip grades. But it really a lot of times ends up doing more harm than good because even though academically and intellectually those students are very smart, they're still a third grader or they're still a second grader or they're still a fourth grader. So when, so maturity wise, developmentally wise, 
they're not ready for that older grade and they don't fit in with their peers then because they're not with their peers anymore. You know, if you're in third grade and you skip two grades and you go up to fifth grade, that's a huge age difference. And maturity wise, developmentally wise, you're not going to fit in. And it doesn't, in any, all of the research I did, it didn't specify what grade he skipped, but in elementary school, that's a big deal. And we already know that Charles is a pleaser because he wants to make his mom happy, but we're going to learn also that Charles became a prankster in school. And I believe that that's because he wanted to fit in. And he even says in an interview, you know, I wanted the older kids to like me. I wanted to fit in. So I began doing things to get laughs from them. I wanted their approval. So there you go. Yet again, he's trying to find that approval. Dell also made Charles practice every morning for 30 minutes before the bus came on the piano. And he became a very accomplished piano player. But you're going to see that because Della is such a helicopter mom, well, she's really beyond a helicopter mom, that later he rebels against exceeding in everything he does. In fact, once Charles gets to high school, he started, he did great in the classes he was interested in. He didn't even have to try. But stuff he didn't care about, he just didn't try. And instead, he started stealing report cards from the school office forging his grades and lying to his parents about how good they were. And the main problem was his conduct because he liked to pull pranks in class and he liked to be the class clown. His conduct was terrible and it was all over his report cards, but his parents never even knew because he started forging those report cards at such an early age. Now, Charles would start his criminal career early By the age of 13, he already was in trouble with the law for petty theft and aggravated assault. But of course, Dell took care of everything. She hushed it up, made sure he got probation, and made sure that he went to his probation officer like he should. But even his juvenile probation officer said that Charles could divorce himself from reality like no one he had ever met that he would come up with a whole new story and convince himself that it was true. And that once he decided that that was the story, that was it. It didn't matter if there were facts to prove that he was lying. Charles never wavered. And it was obvious he fully believed whatever story he created in his mind. Now, when he was 15, he graduated from high school and enrolled in the University of North Texas. He wanted to become a surgeon. There's a hint. While he was at UNT, police caught Charles and some of the other students involved in a burglary ring of local stores there in Dallas. They caught them stealing, and on Charles, they found cash, a rifle, and two handguns. Charles tried to claim that he had no idea that the items were stolen, that he wasn't involved with these boys, but he wanted to please the older boys. So when they told him to please hold their stuff, and keep it in his room for them, he agreed. He had no idea these things were stolen. Now, his mother, as usual, tried to come in and make it all go away. At first, she tried to be his lawyer, and that didn't work. Next, she went around to all the stores 
and offered to pay for all the stolen goods. The stores were not going for that either. And then in court, she offered to go to jail in Charles's place, but the judge was having none of that either. So Charles ended up going to jail for a year. With Kizik Hands Free Shoes, motion sounds something like this. Kizik helps you experience the magic of motion. With over 200 patents and easy on, easy off technology, you'll never have to touch your shoes again. There are hundreds of styles and colors, plus a squish like nothing you've ever felt. For a limited time, get a free pair of socks with your first order at kizik.com slash socks. When Charles got out of prison, he enrolled in Arkansas Arkansas State Teachers College. He majored in pre-med. No one there knew he was already a convicted felon. And yet again, he became very well-known at school. He was very popular. He was president of the French Club, business manager of the yearbook, member of the school choir, and halfback on the football team. He signed up for a drawing course, and the art professor made him the class model because he thought he was so handsome. And yet again, he became known as a great prankster. He stole the unstealable physics test right out from under the teacher's nose, made a copy of it, and brought it back before the teacher ever noticed. He snuck into the home ec building and cooked a full steak dinner for his friends. But the most notorious prank he ever pulled was on a good friend of his. He was dating a beautiful girl with almond-shaped eyes. When his friend broke up with the girl, he threw all of his pictures over in the trash. But Charles fished them out and then painstakingly cut all of her eyes out of every single picture. He then glued the old girlfriend's eyes onto the picture of his friend's new girlfriend on top of her eyes. So one night, when his friend was laying on his bed, he realized something was wrong with the picture. When he got closer to it, he realized that his old girlfriend's eyes were on top of his new girlfriend's eyes. And then he started to look. The old girlfriend's eyes were on the ceiling. They were in the halls. They were in the bathroom. Everywhere he looked, his former girlfriend's eyes were staring at him. Everyone thought this was hilarious. In fact, when they were asked about it later, they said, you know, didn't you find this weird? And they said, no, it was pure Charlie. He always had the most inventive pranks. I wonder if they feel differently about it now. Now, Charles at that time began dating a girl named Betty Hester, and they eventually married and had a daughter together. But Charles was up to his old tricks again, and he was again found with stolen goods, so he got kicked out of school. Since he didn't earn a degree... He just decided he'd fake one. Remember, he's been forging report cards since he was in school. So, he faked a degree from East Texas State University. He broke into the school, stole all the paperwork, forged all the signatures, and then snuck them into his files. 
He even was bold enough to use the registrar's own typewriter so his documents would match all the other documents from the schools. He get and, and let me tell you, he didn't hold back. He gave himself a master's degree in biology and showed that he was working on a master's degree in counseling and science and even enrolled himself in East Texas State's um, PhD program. And he had a teacher certificate. I mean, he looked great on paper. So he used these fake credentials to become a biology teacher in Crandall, a small town east of Dallas. Everyone at the school loved him. His students loved him. He, they were transfixed by him. They would go on field trips and he knew all the names of all the bugs that they would find. He knew names of birds and lizards and he could also do their Latin, knew their Latin names too. And because he was so popular with the students and the students loved class, of course, the parents and faculty loved him also, especially administrators. But it was called to the school's attention by East Texas State University that he didn't have a degree from them. It was fake. So when the school confronted him about it, he grinned and he admitted to it. He said he needed to bend the rules a little bit. He needed a job to, to support his family. But he had to have, he had to leave school now. Here's the thing. He didn't tell him he had to leave school because he was caught stealing. He said he had to leave school because he had a young family to support. And he just didn't have time to go back to school after he left Arkansas State Teaching College. Uh, instead, he said it was such a shame that he couldn't finish his degree because there was a professor at Tulane University in New Orleans who really wanted to hire him to do biology research. And uh, since Charles was such a seasoned con man by this time, everyone believed it. Remember, his probation officer said that any story he told, he truly believed himself. So he made all the school officials believe it. Now, both schools were a little embarrassed that they both were duped. So, yet again, he only received probation and none of his family were any the wiser. No one ever knew about it. So, he and his daughter and his wife moved back to Oak Cliff and moved into a house just a few blocks away from Charles's parents. But Charles really deep down was not interested in being a family man. And he really wasn't interested in holding down a nine-to-five job and supporting his family anyway. Betty instead taught English, and Charles just floated around from project to project doing whatever he wanted. For a while, he was a designer for a company that built airplanes. Then he was an illustrator for a patent company. He was also a very talented carpenter, so he did odd jobs like that around town. At one point, he decided to become a hairdresser, and he did women's hair, spending an hour on each woman and called himself Mr. Charles. And even went to a border town and became a bullfighter and was known as Senor Albright from Dallas. Albright was also an accomplished artist. And it really does sound like he was kind of a renaissance man that anything he decided to do, he was good at. He liked to paint portraits. And he even won first prize at the Texas State Fair for a portrait of a woman he painted. So a friend of his found out that he painted portraits and commissioned him to paint a portrait of his wife. Charles got to work immediately. But after weeks, 
He still wasn't done. So his friend became frustrated and came by the house to check on Charles's progress. And Charles admitted that everything was done except just one small part. Everything, when the friend looked at the painting, everything indeed was perfect. Charles had captured perfectly his wife's hair, her mouth, her nose, her ears, her neck. But there was one thing missing, the eyes. There were just two white holes in the middle of the painting. His friend asked Charles, when are you going to paint her eyes? And Charles looked at him and said, when I'm ready to. He said they must be perfect. Now, when he was finally done with the painting, the eyes were perfect. Down to the very finest detail, including the shading under the woman's lashes on her bottom lash line. No bit of detail was spared. The friend was so impressed with it, he said that the eyes were so perfect that it seemed like they followed you around the room. But by 1974, Betty was sick of Charles and his flippant behavior. And so she divorced him and took their daughter and moved. So instead, it didn't really seem to phase Charles. He became a friend to everyone in the neighborhood. He babysat for the other families. He sang in the church choir. He even became a stand-in priest at his church and would preach sometimes and dress up like Santa Claus and handed out presents at Christmas time. But in March of 1985, Charles was convicted of something much worse than stealing or forging documents. One of the families that he babysat for accused him of molesting their 14-year-old daughter. Charles was 51 at this time. Now, Charles denied this charge vehemently, but he pled guilty anyway. He said he didn't want to hassle and that the family just needed a scapegoat. Now, I don't know about you, but if I was convicted of molesting or accused of molesting a child, I would never just say, oh, well, sure, I'll take the conviction. I don't want the hassle. No way. Which, you know, pretty sure he was guilty. I don't think anyone, you know, doubted it. But he denied it the whole entire time. But just said he didn't want the hassle. So, the parents were hoping to not stigmatize their daughter any more than it was than any more than maybe it possibly already had because Oak Cliff was a small neighborhood and kind of a little community unto itself. They didn't want to cause any more trouble for her. So they agreed that instead of prison time, Charles would just get 10 years probation. So now he wasn't only a thief, he was a convicted sexual predator. The nice guy mask was starting to slip. And we know, at heart, Charles is a con man, so he soon found a new woman to con into supporting him. Albright met a woman named Dixie Austin. She was a shy, pretty widow that he met in Arkansas while he was on a business trip. When he met her, he charmed her with romantic dinner dates and read poetry to her and treated her like a queen. She said he was generous and he was kind and there was no one that treated her better than Charles. And soon, Charles invited her to live with him at his home in Oak Cliff. And, of course, Dixie would support him financially and pay all of his bills while Charles followed his bliss. But what Dixie didn't know 
was that Charles was already a regular in Dallas's red light district and was well known by many of the sex workers in the area. In fact, Susan Peterson listed him as a co-signer and her best friend on her bond application at Ranger Bail Bonds. There was also proof that he had known Mary Pratt well before she started sex work, and he had dated one of Pratt's friends years ago and had met her then, that he would invite Pratt and the girl he dated to his house for parties. Other sex workers said that when Mary Pratt began working out of the Star Motel in Dallas, he became one of her regular customers and that he was known to most of the girls as Old Man Albright. Some of the women, he would just pick them up, take them out, take them to eat, and they would talk. It was strictly platonic. Other ones, he had regular standing sexual appointments, but always in the afternoons when Dixie was at work. He was also known to pay more than the usual rate, and so he was a favorite amongst a lot of the women. There was one woman in particular that he met every Friday afternoon. She was a married woman, but she secretly worked as a sex worker and didn't start until didn't start her day until her husband went to work and her kids were at school and then of course would be back home in time to meet her family. Now, Charles met her every Friday. And at first she said that Charles was very sweet and very kind. And even would sometimes if she needed extra money, even if they weren't meeting, she could call him and he would just bring her money. But she said things started to change. And by 1987, she had to end their dates because he became too aggressive. He wanted her to beat him and spank him like a child. And this just made her feel very uncomfortable. So she ended their relationship. Another woman named Edna Russell said that Susan Peterson asked her to do a double with her meaning that the customer wanted two women to meet, not just one. So she went with Peterson and they met Albright in a motel room, but he handcuffed them to the bed and then he began hitting them with a belt and an extension cord and yelling, scream, bitch, you know you like it. This, of course, bothered her quite a bit and scared her and she never agreed to meet Albright again. When... Now, Charles kept his behavior in check, so to speak, and under wraps from everyone until his parents passed away. And then things really began to unravel because there was no one around anymore to rein him in. He inherited $96,000 from his parents and all of their rental properties that were located in South Dallas. And this was in 1986. Now, for some reason or another, He never had any of the properties taken out of his father's name and put into his name. So they were still listed as being owned by Fred Albright, not Charles Albright. And he rented out the homes to bring in extra money. He also all of a sudden decided to take up an early morning paper route that took him through South Dallas and all around the red light district. Now, Dixie was not in favor of this. She didn't like the idea. She said it made her nervous that he would be gone in the nighttime. But she, he reassured Dixie it wasn't that big of a deal. He'd leave the house at 3 a.m. and be back home around 6 a.m. before she ever got up for work. 
and he told her he needed extra spending money. He didn't like having to ask her all the time for more money. She did too much as it was. Now, it turns out that this really was the perfect cover for him to become a killer. Albright's first victim was Mary Pratt. And remember, he already had known Mary. He had dated her friend. And he became, remember we talked about this, one of Mary's regular customers. Early on the morning of December 13th, 1990, Mary Pratt was found in an undeveloped lower class area of South Dallas. She was naked except for her t-shirt and bra, which had been pushed up over her breasts. Her eyes were shut and she had been badly beaten. Her face and chest were bruised. She had been shot in the head at close range. A resident in the neighborhood was so disturbed by what he saw, he brought a flowered bed sheet out to cover her body. The police immediately recognized Mary Pratt. She was a veteran sex worker who worked out of the Star Motel in Oak Cliff. And at first, police didn't think much about it because unfortunately, violence was part of this job and the women frequently complained about customers getting violent with them. And police at first just assumed that Mary was an unfortunate victim of her trade. But this thought changed during her autopsy. Detective John Westphalen was given Mary's case, and he was known to be a tenacious investigator. He and his partner, Stan McNear, drove to the Dallas County Medical Examiner's Office to watch the autopsy. Dr. Elizabeth Peacock started the exam, and at first it was very routine. She noted the needle tracks on Mary's arms, a Playboy bunny tattoo on her chest, and the gunshot wound to her head. Then she opened Mary's right eyelid, and then she opened her left. My God, she said, they're gone. There were no eyeballs or any tissue left. Nothing. Mary Pratt's eyes had been cut out and removed so carefully that her upper and lower eyelids were completely undisturbed. Peacock had never seen anything like it. This was not an operation taught in medical school, but whoever did it had to know how to precisely slip a knife around the eyes, making sure not to injure the skin, and then cut the six major muscles holding the eye in the socket as well as the tough optical nerve. Whoever had done this had to have had lots of practice before. Detective McNear said, what kind of person would want to keep a girl's eyeballs? So Detective Westphalen immediately contacted the FBI's Violent Crimes Apprehension Unit. They had no listing of such a procedure ever being committed before. Or performed before, I should say. Police did not release the information about Mary's eyes to the press, so her murder went almost unnoticed to pretty much everyone else. On the morning of Mary Pratt's murder, officers John Matthews and Regina Smith started the daytime shift on Jefferson Boulevard. This was their regular route, patrol route, and it was Mary's Pratt's territory. On this morning, Veronica Rodriguez, a regular sex worker that the officers knew, told them a story about a white man that had picked her up, driven her to a field way out in South Dallas, and raped her. He tried to kill her, but she ran from him and happened to be close to the home of someone she knew. This man she knew also was friends with the killer who was trying to get her. Now, she did have a nasty gash across her forehead and a knife cut on her neck. 
But Rodriguez was known as a liar and would frequently make up stories to the cops to try to make them feel sorry for her so they would leave her alone and not arrest her. And since they tried to get her to give more evidence, but it didn't make sense, they just thought this was another one of her stories. But two days later, officers Matthews and Smith saw Veronica Rodriguez again. And this time she was sitting in the cab of an 18-wheeler with a balding middle-aged white man. As the officers approached, Rodriguez yelled, Don't arrest him! That's the man who saved me from the killer! That's him! So, hoping to maybe get a little more information from this guy, they took his driver's license. His name said Axton Schindler, and he lived at 1035 El Dorado in Dallas. When they ran him, he came up clean. He had a few unpaid tickets, uh, but nothing else, nothing alarming. And the address on his driver's license was a street in an Oak Cliff neighborhood. So, like I said, it didn't match Rodriguez's story at all because Oak Cliff wasn't in South Dallas like Rodriguez claimed she was. The man said he had no idea what Veronica Rodriguez was talking about. And so, again, officers put her off. But guess whose address is 1035 El Dorado in Oak Cliff? You are correct. It is Charles Albright's address. And guess who rents a house in South Dallas from Charles Albright? You're right again. Axton Schindler. Axton Schindler was an oddball. And he was very eccentric. He liked to live off the grid. And he did live in one of Charles's rental houses in South Dallas, right near where the murders took place and where Veronica Rodriguez was taken. Uh, Schindler came under suspicion, but he was ruled out. They said, you know, just because he's an oddball, he didn't like to pay his utilities, and he used Albright's address just because he said it was one more way to keep him off the grid. They didn't think he had the skill or really the smarts to remove this woman's eyeballs or any of the women's eyeballs. So a little over two months after Mary Pratt was found, a second victim was discovered on the same South Dallas road. And her name was Susan Peterson. Remember, also one of uh, Charles Albright's regular women that he visited. And remember, listed on our bail bonds application as co-signer and best friend. Susan Peterson had also been shot in the head, chest, and stomach. Her breasts were exposed, and again, her eyes were closed. But Susan Peterson's body had been left further down the road, so instead of it falling under Dallas PD, it fell under the jurisdiction of Dallas County Sheriff's Department. So Detective Larry Oliver arrived, and he hadn't heard about Mary Pratt's murder. The same scene unfolded in the autopsy room just like before. The pathologist opened one eye and then another, and he motioned for Detective Oliver to come take a look. Neither of them could believe what they were seeing. The woman's eyes had been expertly cut out. Detective Oliver was completely shocked, and the pathologist told him that Dallas PD had had a similar case about two months ago. So, Detective Oliver got in touch with Detective Westphalen, and both officers agreed they were searching for the same twisted killer. They all met, and a task force was soon formed. 
Now, at this time, officers John Matthews and Regina Smith were shaken as they sat there and read the paper. They knew both of these women. These were areas that were their regular patrol areas. So they began warning the women in the area to be careful because someone was out there targeting them. Now, at first, the African-American prostitutes weren't worried about it. They said, he's just killing white girls. We're not worried about it. But that would change soon also. Police had been tracking down every tip and lead that they had, but nothing useful came up. And they were soon waiting for hopefully a new clue or something to happen. But instead, early in the morning on March 19th, 1991, a woman named Shirley Williams was found. And this time she was African-American. But her body had been left somewhere different. Instead of being in South Dallas, her body had been left near an elementary school right in the middle of Oak Cliff. She was naked, lying against the curb, and an unopened condom was left beside her body on the ground. It was red. Detective Westphalen asked the medical examiner's field agent to check her eyes, and sure enough, they were gone. Shirley Williams' autopsy revealed that the killer had been in a rush. This time, it wasn't as clean of a procedure as it had been before. The broken tip of an X-Acto knife had been found in the skin near her right eye. Officers Matthew and Smith were out on their normal patrol route again, and this time they saw an African-American sex worker named Brenda White. They stopped and told her to be careful, and they told her about Shirley Williams. White told the officers that a few nights ago, she had to mace a man who had tried to attack her. She said the man had pulled up in a station wagon, pulled up, and asked her to get into the car with him. So she did. She told him that they could go to a motel, but he said no, he had a better place. But because White was a veteran, she never allowed any of her customers to take her other places, so she refused. But the man became enraged and yelled at her, I hate whores! I'm going to kill all of you motherfucking whores! This scared her. She shot him in the face with mace and then jumped out of the car and ran. The officers couldn't shake White's story. They began going through their notes. They decided that they needed to run a check on Axton Schindler. When they ran his address, it came back as a house belonging to Fred Albright, but Fred Albright was listed as deceased. So, they did another search and found more properties that were listed as Fred Albright being the owner. They were all on a street in South Dallas called Cotton Valley. That was the neighborhood where Mary Pratt and Susan Peterson's bodies were found. And after they dug a little more, that was where Axton Schindler actually lived on Cotton Valley. The officer that was helping them, Walter Cook, said he believed this had something to do with Charles Albright. He said a few weeks earlier, he took an anonymous phone call from a woman who said she had been friends with Mary Pratt. She said Pratt introduced her to a man named Charles Albright, who had a strange fascination with eyes and kept exacto knives in his attic. They took their story to Detective Westphalen, who agreed with them that it sounded like Charles Albright was their man. So, they brought Veronica Rodriguez to the station to look at photographs. She was very scared and at first refused to look at any of the pictures of the men that they laid out in front of her. But Westphalen told her to please help them to get this guy off the street because he was murdering women. So, she looked at the pictures 
immediately picked up Charles Albright's photograph and signed her name on the back. On March 22, 1991, a tactical team searched Albright's home. They found exacto knives and red condoms. Dixie, his common-law wife now at this point, was past menopause and said she didn't know why those condoms were in her house. Poor Dixie. Police found hairs matching Pratt and Peterson on a blanket in the back of Albright's car. There were also hairs matching Shirley Peterson in Albright's vacuum cleaner. Another sex worker came forward who knew Albright. She saw him the night Shirley Williams died. She took the officers to a field near Fort Worth Boulevard where Albright used to take her. They found Williams' yellow raincoat smeared with blood. It also had Albright's hairs on it. They found an old blue blanket and used red condoms. Albright's friends and Dixie just couldn't believe that sweet, kind, funny, generous Charles Albright could have done any of the things the police were saying he did. But on December 19, 1991, the jury returned a guilty verdict and a life sentence. Albright denied he was guilty until the day he died in prison at the John Montford Psychiatric Unit at the age of 87 in 2002. Even though he was fascinated by the human eye until the day he died, he decorated his cell with drawings and photographs of the human eye. Thank you for listening today. I hope you enjoyed this episode. Uh, please remember to rate, subscribe, and leave a five-star review. Please tell your friends to listen too. I'd love to hear your thoughts or suggestions for other cases or thoughts on today's episode you or thoughts on the Ladybird Lake situation. You can find me on Instagram at Texas True Crime Pod or email me at Texas True Crime Podcast at gmail.com. I will see you next week. Bye.